So we're going to be in 1 John 5 tonight. 1 John 5. Uh, we're grateful for uh, Stan and for, for Derek for uh, finishing up 1 John chapter 4 for us. Uh, we were uh, ministered very well, uh, uh, ministered to very well by our brothers. And so, um, yeah, thank you guys for your service. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this evening. Verses 1 through 4. The word of God reads this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let's pray. Our Father, as we uh, turn to your word and as we cover what looks to be a very uh, familiar concept, we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to consider uh, just uh, how our love for you and our love for others um, works together to prove that we belong to you. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to strive as best we can with your Spirit's help to show this love to others, to grow in this love so that all who see our lives may see your love and wonder why we love the way that we do. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that you would honor yourself uh, as, as we study and as we think uh, about uh, more about you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know that the Apostle Paul was one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the 27, maybe even 14 of the 27 books that are found in the New Testament. And he wrote with great intensity, but he also proclaimed the gospel with great intensity. Uh, he went on three missionary journeys and he actually experienced real persecution for the sake of the gospel, persecution that very well could have led to his death. He tells us that he was, be he was beaten many times. Uh, he was uh, whipped uh, all the way up to the point where you could die at least three times. And he was shipwrecked and, and uh, there were other things that he endured as well. The apostle Paul was in real danger uh, when he was proclaiming the gospel, he experienced real persecution. And if it were you and me, we'd probably give up, right? The moment you get beat up the first time to the point of death, you're probably like, okay, maybe I can do this again. But if it happens three times and then you get also get whipped, uh, or if it happens multiple times and then you also get whipped three times so that within an inch of your life, you're probably thinking, maybe this isn't the best thing for me right now, right? Maybe it ain't worth it for me to do this, but that's not Paul. Right, Paul pressed on because there was one thing that Paul could not get out of his mind. The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ was in Paul's mind. He couldn't shake it. He was dominated by it. He was enthralled by it. And that was the reason why every single time he almost died, he got back up and he proclaimed the gospel even more because he loved his Savior. 
because he wanted to see that end result. That's why Paul kept on going. It is for this reason that Paul tells the Corinthians that he and his coworkers, they don't care if they lived or died in service of Christ because the love of Christ controlled them. It compelled them to live for him and to proclaim his name to others so that they could be saved. So you see, love for Christ, it's a powerful force in this world. It is the very motivation that drives men and women around the world to evangelize. It's the very reason why the gospel has gone forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world, all the way to us here in America. Love for Jesus Christ motivates Christians to strive to love one another so that we can show our family and our friends and our neighbors that faith in Jesus Christ is not useless. Right? It's not something that's like, oh, it's good for you, but uh, I will stick to my own beliefs. No, this is actually something that is powerful. It's something that that has impact. It changes the facts on the ground. It impacts our entire society. Faith in Jesus Christ is not the hope of delusional people who reject science and cannot cope with reality. Faith in Jesus Christ, it deals with our sin and it helps us strive to help others find that truth, to help others Find the comfort that can come with having sins forgiven. It provides us the hope of being with Christ for eternity on a new earth. Without love at the core of a Christian's life, we have seen that confidence in this faith, in Jesus Christ, it's unwarranted. It's unwarranted. However, what John reiterates uh, to, to us tonight is that this love, this faith, that we have, it is something that impacts life. It has true impact. And because of that, John shows us tonight two reasons why love is central in a Christian's life. Two reasons why love is central to a Christian's life. And the first reason why love is central to a Christian's life is because love defines genuine believers. Love defines genuine believers. Let's read verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. The Apostle John again uses the word whoever to explain that any individual who meets the qualification of believing that Jesus is the Christ is truly born of God. John is not advocating for people to merely acknowledge with their words that Jesus is the Christ in order to be saved, but he's noting that belief in the right facts about Christ are necessary in order to enter into a right relationship with him. So you don't just say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. We actually have to know the right things as well. Uh, and what is it that we are to believe? Well, we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God whom the Old Testament prophets foretold. Now, you and I, because we've heard this many, many times before in Sunday school and in fellowship, can push past this idea of believing that Jesus is the Christ. 
right? We just read it. We're just like, okay, that's, yeah, it's a given, right? Jesus is the Christ. We know that. Um, that's why Jesus and Christ are linked together all the time. Jesus is the Christ, right? We just push past it because we're, we're used to it. But consider this, consider this, the religious leaders of Israel and Jesus's own disciples, they struggled with the concept of a crucified anointed one, a crucified Messiah who would deliver people from their sins. This is not something that they took for granted, that Jesus is the Christ. They thought he was the Messiah, but when, they, when he actually died, they were, at least the disciples, were left scratching their heads wondering, did we, did we follow the wrong guy? And the Pharisees were the ones who were saying, he definitely wasn't the Christ, because he was put down. And so these people, even though they knew their Bibles, they didn't understand what that meant. Jesus is the Christ. They merely understood, uh, at least at that time, that God's anointed one would be a political deliverer. And when Jesus failed to, to do what they thought he was going to do, that's why they were like, hmm, is this the guy? Or so the, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that's something that is uh, really substantial. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, sorry, not substantial. It's, it's important for us to latch on to. Right? We don't just read past it because we're familiar with it. We want to understand what, that, um, what all of that entails. And you have to, you have to wonder, you know, how can it be? How can it be that the religious leaders of Israel, the ones who are supposed to be experts in the law, experts in all of God's word, at least in the Old Testament, how is it that they could miss the fact that the Messiah wasn't going to be a, a, only a political leader, a political deliverer? How is it they missed the fact that when Messiah came, he was supposed to save people from their sins? This is a result of poor teaching of the scriptures, poor study of the scriptures on the part of the religious leaders and on the part of the people who were supposed to pass the faith on to others. Old Testament passages such as Genesis 3.15, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, Daniel 7. They are but a small sample of how the Old Testament spoke of the coming Christ and how he was not there just to deliver politically. He was there to deliver his people from their sins. It was so much more. And yet, a failure to study the word carefully, a failure to study the word uh, diligently, led to them missing all the signs that Jesus, or, or that the Messiah would be one who saves his people from their sins. So when we think about this, right, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, that reminds us that a right knowledge of who the Christ would be intellectually was right under the nose of God's people, and yet they missed it. And so we have to be careful of missing it. We have to be careful of missing it. Do we have a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ was and what he came to do? Did he come to overthrow political structures? Did he come to reorient society to a perfect utopia? Or did he come to deliver us from our sins? And then some of those things come on. 
we have to understand what Christ came for. However, we also want to be careful. Right? We don't want to judge Israel, uh, judge the, re- the religious leaders for missing it, because we too uh, are guilty at times of missing things in Scripture. Right? How many times have, have you um, read a certain passage, uh, heard it preached on, and uh, you come back to it years later in your devotionals, and you read it, and then you're just like, oh, oh, how could I have missed that? Oh, now, now it makes sense. I don't know how many times that's happened with me. Right? It's, it's happened a lot. Um, and and uh, the reason why I bring that up is uh, sometimes it's just when, when we have more pieces of the puzzle, everything makes more sense. Right? And so, um, you know, Israel for sure missed a lot of the pieces of the puzzle. They, um, I mean, some of those, some of the language I'm used uh, in, in Psalm 2, in Psalm 110, in Isaiah 53, uh, in Daniel 7, it, it's can't miss. You can't miss that language. Right, but they did because they weren't careful. However, all that to say, right, God previously laid the groundwork of what people were to know intellectually and theologically about his Christ in the Old Testament. And so now as we transport ourselves to where we're at, What's important for us to understand is that a right relationship with Christ is accomplished in part by a right intellectual understanding of Christ. We have to have a right intellectual understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We've gone through this uh, uh, in previous sermons, so I'm not going to to continue to to pound down on that, but... um, this right intellectual understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, that is so vital for how we choose to live our lives as a result. And this right relationship with Jesus Christ, it is accomplished in part by our our intellectual understanding of who he is, but it's also solidified through right relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what does a right relationship with Jesus Christ look like? Well, an understanding of what right relationship with Jesus Christ looks like begins with one's spiritual origins, right? Our origin story. What is our origin story? Where do we come from spiritually? Well, John tells us here in verse 1 that we are born of God. We are born of God. Whoever believes the right things about Jesus Christ has their spiritual origin from God. We, we are born of God. And that idea of being born of God, that's a perfect passive verb. It's a completed, a completed action that has happened in the past. It has continual results today, but it's also an action that is dependent upon God. We don't do it to ourselves. God does it for us, to us, if you will. And that makes sense, right? Because when you were born, did you have any say? Did you get to choose what time of the year you were, you were born? Did you, have, did you play any part in your own birth? No, right? Absolutely not. Your mother birthed you. She was the one doing the action. You were just passive in the whole thing. And perhaps your mother birthed you with the help of a doula or a doctor, but you had no role in it. You were passive in your birth. And don't get me started on the foolishness of I had no consent on my birth. No one has consent over their birth, okay? Don't start getting me started on the foolishness of consent of birth. That is ridiculous. 
Anyway, in a similar way, in a similar way, right? When we are born of God, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ were born of God, uh, this, this has happened in eternity past. God did this. He sovereignly chose to save you just because. Just because. He did not choose to save you because he looked down the corridors of history and he saw that you would believe in him. And so he said, oh yeah, I'm going to choose to save this person. He didn't cheat ahead to guarantee results. He chose to save you just because. He didn't look into your future and saw that you would be useful to him. And so therefore he chose to save you. He just chose to save you because. Because what? Because he loved you. And this idea that God might choose to save us because he looked down the corridor of history and he saw that we would believe in him or that we would have a skill set that would uh, be useful for him. That actually makes God out to be a God who does not save on the basis of grace. Rather, he saves us based off of future merit or he saves us because, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that you were going to believe in me. Oh, great. I'll save you. That's, that's the kind of picture that we, we create if we believe in a God who doesn't know that he's going to save us. That's the, that's the, the kind of God that we create when we say uh, that God did not choose us from the beginning uh, uh, um, or from eternity past. Right? God elected you just because he elected you. Because he loves you. That's all. That's it and that's all. And that's hard to believe, right? It's so hard to believe. Because when you look at yourself, you have to be wondering, what? Me? Why? Why? There's nothing in me. Right? There's nothing in me. There's no reason why God should have chosen me. There are definitely better people, smarter people, more gifted people out there that God should have saved other than me. But he chose to save us. Just because. At the right time in human history, because God has previously chose us and loved us, we see the depth of our sin, we recognize our need for salvation, and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, all because of the grace of God which he has given to us. And so since we have been born of God, since God has given us spiritual life and has, as we have seen from Romans 8.15, adopted us into his family, our right relationship with Jesus Christ results in love for God the Father. So it says here, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So here in the second half of verse 1, John assumes that those who are born of God love the Father. It's not possible for a Christian to be born of God and not love the Father. You have to love God. You have to love God. Matthew 22, 37. Mark 12, 28. And Luke 10, 25. Record two incidences where Jesus is interacting with a religious lawyer. In Matthew 22 and Mark 12, that lawyer is asking Jesus, he's putting Jesus to the test, and he's saying, what is the greatest or most important commandment? We have a lot of commandments in the scriptures. What is the the greatest one? 
What's the one that is most important for us to keep? In Luke 10, the lawyer is asking, another lawyer is asking how one might inherit eternal life. And in both of these exchanges, Deuteronomy 6 is mentioned as the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That is the greatest and foremost of all the commandments. That is how you inherit eternal life. And by the way, when Jesus confirms that in Luke 10, it does show us that salvation in the Old Testament was always based off of love for God, not ability to keep the commandments. Always the love of God. Always. I could go on a rabbit trail there, but I, I will refrain. Uh, right? But it's always been the love of God, a love for God, belief in God, trust in God. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Right? So love for God, belief in God, faith in God, that is the main thing. The most important commandment. Love for God has always been at the core of salvation, even in the Old Testament. It is what leads people to believe in God and place their faith in him. Love for God, therefore, is assumed in those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We ought to love God because we're grateful for him. Right? We, we acknowledge all the good things that he has done for us. We acknowledge the fact that he is God. We acknowledge the fact that though we were sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. And because of that, we love God. Learned it in 1 John 4. Right? We love because he first loved us. And so as we love God, the natural result of our love for him, it goes back to him, yes, but it doesn't stay there. It also spreads. It spreads to those who are also born of God. And that, again, reminds us of this exchange that Jesus had with these religious lawyers. Because in both incidences, the lawyers say, or, or we hear that love for God is most important, but then... It's followed closely by, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this doesn't mean that we love ourselves before we can love our neighbors. That's not true. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. Because your love for God teaches you how to love others, okay? That's, that's why. Um, it, it's there in terms of ranking as in 1A, 1B. Love for God is most important, but right underneath it, attached to it, tied, handcuffed to love for God is love for others. It ought to be a natural thing for us to love God's other children. And we love Christ. He's, you know, he's the foremost of us all, but we ought to love one another. We have to. We have to. We should want to because we're family and we're family. And that's not just something that we just say, oh, warm feelings, and I hope you feel better. No, that's not something we say at all as a platitude. That is real. Or you might not feel relationship with me directly because you're not directly related to me. But brothers and sisters, we are family. We ought to love one another as family. We ought to treat each other as family. There ought to be a natural love among the siblings of God for one another. And take careful note, take careful note, this passage is not applied to our fellow man as a whole. It is not applied to our fellow man as a whole, 
but it is limited to those who are also born of God. If we love God, we will love the child born of him. That means fellow Christians. Now, it does not mean, okay, don't hear what I am not saying. It does not mean that we do not value other people outside of our Christian family. We do. We should. Nor does it mean that we do not want to show God's love to those who are not Christians, okay? We should want to show them God's love because we want for them to be saved. But what we see here, what it means here for us to love the child born of God is that the proof that we truly love God is seen in our love for one another. It's seen in our love for one another. Love for fellow Christians is a mark of what right relationship with Jesus Christ looks like because it is the external evidence that we have been born of God and that we love God. And that leads us to verse two. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Verse one should get you to ask the question, how do I know if I am loving God's children correctly. How do I know if I love God's children correctly? Because after all, right, we can say that we love God and that we love his children, but what if the way that we are loving God's people isn't actually love as God wants us to love? Right? What if the love that we show other people is not the love that God wants us to show? Verse 2 provides us with a bit of an answer, some guidelines, if you will. Um, ultimately, what we see is love for the children of God. It is informed by God himself. The basis for how we love God is explained by God through his word. His word tells us how we love one another. We don't get to decide what love looks like. God himself defines what love looks like. And that word observe in the NASB or obey in the ESV is the word do in Greek. We will do or practice God's commandments as we love him. And that is how we know we love one another, when we are obeying the word of God's instructions when it comes to one another love. Leviticus and Deuteronomy Tell us, tell us how we are to love our neighbors. Even early then, in, that old, in the Old Testament, do we see how we are to love one another. Now, of course, some of those things don't apply anymore because we're not, you know, we're not Israel. But at the same time, we see the foundation of how we are to love one another in the law. In the law. It's not useless. It's not useless. For instance, in Deuteronomy 13.3, God reveals to his people that he will allow for, he will allow for false prophets or dreamers of dreams to come into the midst of Israel to test God's people, to see if they actually love him with all their heart and their soul. And so even back in Moses' Moses' time, God knew that there were people who were going to say, yeah, I love God but not even know what that means. Right? We could say it, do you love God? Yeah, I love God, but 
do you actually know what that means? Do you actually know what that looks like? And that's why God allows for his people to be put to the test. And in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 13, Moses tells the people that in response to this test, the people should follow the Lord your God, fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him instead of trusting other gods. And I bring this up to you here and now so that you will know, so that you can see with your own eyes that the scripture itself defines love for God as obedience to him and total allegiance to him. This is not the creation of Calvinists. This is not the creation of theological eggheads who uh, have an agenda. Love for God has always been demonstrated and evidenced by obedience to him, allegiance to him and him alone. That's why Israel got in trouble so often, because they said, yeah, I love God, but their actions proved otherwise. I love God, but I'm going to trust in Egypt to deliver me. I love God, but I'm going to trust in Assyria to deliver me. I love God, but I would rather have wealth. I love God, but, and so on and so forth. So brothers and sisters, going back to 1 John 5, when we know who God is and love him, we're going to want to know what his word has to say to us. We're going to strive our best. I mean, we're going to strive as best as we can to do what God's word says. Hearers of God's word are always doers of God's word if we love him. And that's why, that is why we are calling, we are constantly calling us, uh, each other, to love one another. That's why we're striving for this in our fellowship group. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult uh, with this shelter in place time, right? but don't abandon love for one another because of that. And don't allow for things outside of the church to be the things that divide the church. Brothers and sisters, we are supposed to impact the world, not the other way around. The church ought not look like the world. We ought to show the world the difference that the gospel makes. And that's why we strive to love one another. Show grace, show charity, show mercy. And if you don't agree, that's okay. We don't have to agree. Right? Even within our own church, we have people on all sides of the political spectrum. We have people on all sides of the economic spectrum, whatever spectrum. Right? But the thing that brings us together, the thing that makes us the church is what? Jesus. He unifies it all in himself. It's amazing. It's amazing. And the love that we show for one another, that hurdles over those differences, that obliterates those differences, that is the thing that allows the world to see that it's different with Christ. And this is not like any other religion where it's, uh, where, where people have to, to come together and the, the distinctions are, are still built up. 
There, there are no second or third class citizens in Christianity. We're all the same. We're all joint heirs with Christ. And Jesus himself clearly says in John 13, 35, that the world will know that we are his disciples when we what? We love one another. There are no exceptions. There are no escape clauses. There are no provisions for difficult family members or church members. There are no provisions for people with personalities that are not compatible with ours. There are no provisions for not loving someone because they do not agree with you on sociopolitical economical matters. Those who are committed to loving God and observing his commandments have absolutely no excuse not to love one another. It's in our very spiritual DNA that we love one another, that we're supposed to love one another. So, how are you doing in this area? How are you doing? I'm willing to bet that a lot of us have reason to say ouch here. We have a, a lot of us have a reason to say ouch. Me too. Me too. Okay, I have to say ouch. But praise be to God. But praise be to God that there is grace. That we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. And he doesn't abandon us because we cannot follow his commandments perfectly. He doesn't do that. He gives us grace for that. But that doesn't mean we can abuse it. Love is central to a Christian's life because love for God and for his people is the very definition of a genuine believer in Christ. But there is a second reason why love is central to a Christian's life. And it's because love evidences a believer's victory. Love evidences a believer's victory. Verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So as we've just established in verse two, love for God is tied closely with the idea of obeying God's commandments. Here we see in verse three, another aspect of loving God, which is keeping his commandments. Now these words are synonymous, but there is a nuance. There is a nuance. The word keep, right? In contrast to the word uh, observe, the word keep has a sense of, uh, has a sense of persistence in obedience. It can be translated um, in, in that way, persistence in obedience. So not only do we strive to obey God's commands, we seek to consistently and persistently obey God's word. It's easy for us to obey God's word from time to time, right? We all occasionally obey God. We all occasionally please God, but uh, uh, and especially when it's convenient for us, but obedience to God's commands are not to be selective. And it's not to be convenient. Obedience to God's commandments are required of all believers at all times, no matter what the circumstance. It's a persistence and a consistence in obedience to God's word. And that sounds rough, doesn't it? To consistently, persistently obey God. It sounds impossible. It's daunting. But... But God himself is the one who provides us with the means to obey. He gives us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit enables us not only to obey, but 
also to remember what has been revealed to us in God's word. And because God has given us his spirit to help us, Paul says in Galatians 5.25 that if we live by the spirit, we are to walk by the spirit. Put in another way, if you are spiritually alive today because the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart so that you could believe in Jesus Christ, and if you're a Christian, that is what you are, then you are to continuously walk by the Spirit's power and by his guidance. God has given us his Holy Spirit so that we who used to live according to the desires of our flesh would instead live according to the Spirit's guidance. That's Galatians 5.17. So as we grow in our knowledge of God and as we keep his commandments with the Spirit's help, that is when the fruit of the Spirit has been given to every believer, all of them, that's when it begins to blossom. That's when it begins to mature. And it doesn't happen magically in our lives as if God will suddenly make us more holy just because we pray, God, please make me holy. God doesn't work that way. Where the Spirit works in conjunction with us as we grow in godliness. He partners with us. When we pray the prayer of, God, please take this sin away from me, and he doesn't take the temptation away from you, we cannot think, oh, well, maybe the reason why God didn't take the temptation away from me is because God doesn't want me to flee from temptation right now. That's not right thinking. God never justifies our sin. God never allows for us to partake in just one more sin. He wants us to deal with all of our sin. He doesn't give us any escape clauses in terms of our responsibility to deal with sin in our lives. Yes, he is gracious and he's merciful when we do sin, but he doesn't say, oh, well, you've been good. You've been mostly good. You've been mostly obedient. So today, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and sin however you want, however short you want. My grace will cover that. He doesn't say that. Right? Put off the old man. Put on the new man. That's us. That's dependent on us. Right? It's for this reason that, that John commands us here in 1 John 5 that we, are to, uh, that we are to keep his commandments. We are responsible to keep God's commandments. If it was solely up to God, then we wouldn't, then we wouldn't need to keep God's commandments. It would just happen. But we are told by John to keep God's commandments, to persistently obey God's commandments, because we have to strive for holiness too. In the Old Testament, God called those who loved him to obey him, and that doesn't change in the New Testament. What changes is that we have been given hearts of flesh that are able to respond to the truth. What changes is the fact that we've been given the Holy Spirit who enables and energizes our pursuit of righteousness. You don't have to do this on your own. You do this in his power. You can't just pray for God to change you and take no responsibility for your own spiritual growth. There are no shortcuts when it comes to holiness, brothers and sisters. We have to put work in. And it's just like mining for gold. You don't just sit there in front of a hole in the ground and expect gold to pop out. This is not, the, this is not like a Lego video game. 
Okay, you got to work for it. You got to work for it. We have to strive for Christ likeness. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it is hard, isn't it? Doesn't it feel burdensome at times to keep God's commandments like this? When we're struggling, aren't we tempted to wonder whether it's worth keeping God's commands if we're still going to struggle with our sins anyway? Yeah. Right? We're tempted to think that. Absolutely. Absolutely, we're tempted to think that way. But is it worth it in the end? Absolutely. It's absolutely worth pursuing Christ-likeness, even if we're going to struggle. Because obedience to God pleases God, the God we love. Obedience motivated by love for God will make God's commandments not burdensome because it's done out of a desire to please him. Instead of looking at it as a checklist, we're we're looking at it in terms of, no, I want to do this. I want to love God. And there's a complete difference. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus calls all who are weak and heavy laden to come to him and he will give them rest. He will give us his yoke and we will learn, we will rest, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light. What's he saying there? He's not saying you don't have to work ever again if you come to me. You're just going to be able to kick back and relax and enjoy. That's not what he's saying, right? He's going to put a yoke on us, but it's light. It's easy. And what he's doing here is he's calling out He's calling out the futility of man-centered religion, particularly the religious, the religion of the Jewish religious leaders who all had like so many laws that everyone had to keep. And if you failed, you had to go back and maintain your righteousness through sacrifices. And then you have to do it again. You have to try again to maintain your own righteousness, right? That's burdensome. That's tiring to continually have to start again and again, and again, and again, to achieve your own righteousness so that you don't miss it. You don't have to fear, brothers and sisters. You don't have to fear messing up so badly that God says, you know what, you're out. You know what, you're out of the family. You don't ever have to worry about that. Why? Because it's different with Jesus. Because he is the one who provides you with righteousness. You don't have to bring your own righteousness. He provides it. He provides it. He is the one who guarantees your salvation if you believe in him and turn away from your sins. He is the one who enables and supports you after you've been saved to grow in godliness. He is the one who grows our affection and our thankfulness to God so that we want to obey. So that when we Look into the future. We really can say better is one day in God's courts than than thousands elsewhere. It's for that reason we can say that if we fail again, that God is our confidence and, and that he will keep us to the end because God is the one who does all the work for us. He encourages us, he challenges us to love him and to pursue him. And we have to do that. But we do it because we love him. We do it because 
we are striving as much as we can to get closer to him. Right? The difference between obeying God's commandments from the religion of the Pharisees and obeying God's commandment as a result of believing upon Christ is that obeying God's commandments as a Christian is motivated and fueled by a passionate desire to get closer to God. Or think about it this way. We have a lot of burdens on our shoulders. We carry the burdens of sin on our shoulders. We, like the rest of creation, are groaning, longing for salvation, longing for glorification, longing for God to put sin to death. We got all, all these burdens on us that are keeping us that are that um, that can keep us a little further away from God, right? When you sin, that sin keeps you away from God. If you feel guilty, if you feel far away from God when you're deep in your sin, there's a reason for that. Because sin cannot be near God. Right? You ought to feel that way because your sin is driving a wedge between you and God. But because of Christ, that wedge is gone, okay? But because we have all these uh, burdens on us, when we love God, if we really, really, really love him, if we're passionate about him, uh, passionate about him, we should want to throw off all of the stuff that's slowing us down so that we can get more of Christ and get closer to him faster. Faster. Right, lighten the load. Get closer to God. Get as close to God as you possibly can in this life because there's nothing else worth doing. If he is our greatest, highest possible good, why would we slow ourselves down by being entangled in sin? Why would we slow ourselves down by saying that momentary sinful pleasure is more worth doing than loving God? Are you willing to give up? Closeness with God for sinful momentary pleasure? You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Because it pulls you away from the God you love. And brothers and sisters, we have to know, we have to know this. Okay, we have to know this. That you can weep and you can be discouraged over your sin. You can weep. You can weep many, many tears. You can pray. For God to forgive you over and over and over and over again. But if love does not motivate you to actively work on getting that sin out of your life, is it any wonder that God's commandments become burdensome to us? Is it any wonder that you think, that's ah, not worth it. I'm just going to sin. And I'll just rely on God's grace later. Do you believe, do you believe that it is worth it to enter into heaven maimed without your eyes that cause you to stumble, without your hands that cause you to stumble, without your feet that cause you to stumble? Is it worth it to enter into heaven maimed compared to going into hell whole? Is it worth it? No, it's not. 
It's not. If we view Christ as a treasure worthy to pursue with all energy, with all discipline, yes, discipline's hard, but with all discipline, then it won't be too much for us to obey God. It won't be burdensome to us to obey God. It won't be fruitless, but it will be fruitful. So, brothers and sisters, when we say that we can't, that we can't obey, it's too hard, what we're really saying is that we won't. We won't obey. That's what we're saying. What we're saying to God is, God, I know that you're with me. I know that you said you will help me obey. But your word, it's just not good enough. It's not good enough to help me. Your word isn't powerful enough to overcome my sin. Your word isn't sufficient enough to free me from the sin that is in my life. Just give me your grace. That's enough. That's what we're saying. My brothers, my sisters, we might not outwardly say those words. We wouldn't dare. But we might practically think these words. We might functionally act like this at times. Our love for God must catch us when we are tempted to think this way. It must catch us. It must rebuke us. And it must encourage us to repent and return to the Lord and get back up in our race to get more of Jesus. Get more of Jesus. Strive for more of Jesus. Let us help each other when we see each other thinking like this too. God's children will love one another. And we will encourage one another to obey him. That's how you know that you are loving God's children correctly. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Verse four, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The mentality that obeying God and loving God is burdensome or impossible is a defeatist attitude. It's an attitude that is inconsistent with what Jesus came to do for our lives. John reminds us that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And what we see at the end of verse 4 is that the thing that is born of God that overcomes the world is our faith. Our faith. Faith comes to us as a grace gift from God. This faith that has been gifted to us, that is the thing that overcomes the world. And the idea of overcoming the world is the idea of victory. It's the victory that Christ has over over sin. It has over death. Um, it has over Satan. Right? This is the victory that our faith has. It's all accomplished because of Christ. Christ's death, and re- death on the cross and his resurrection has accomplished the final victory for believers. So we are not without hope. We know what the end will be like because The faith that God has given us and the word that God has given us shows us that God wins in the end. Christ wins in the end. As sin is put to death forevermore. Christ wins in the end and he takes us home to be with him. And we will reign with him. We will be like we were always supposed to be. And when we finally get home, When we finally get home, wow, wow, what a joy that will be. What a relief that will be to finally be home and to 
and to em embrace our Savior. That'll be so amazing. That's worth it, brothers and sisters, to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's what you should strive to hear. We, that's why we want to get closer to Christ. Romans 8.1 makes it very clear. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not face the wrath of God for your sins. Jesus already took that wrath that you deserved upon himself, and he brought you victory over your sins on that day when he rose from the grave. But as a result, Christians, we ought to put away the former manner of life, our sinful manner of life, and put on the new life that Christ has provided. Put on the spirit-filled life that Christ has given us because it is through him, it is through the Holy Spirit's empowerment and influence that we are able to live a little closer to how we ought to live. It's as close to Christ as we're going to get in this life. That's what he enables us to do. And so as a result, we will grow in our love for God and we will find that obeying God is joyful rather than burdensome. All because Christ has secured victory for us in his death and resurrection and has given us the gift of faith. Now, love is central in the life of a Christian because our love for God, a love that is demonstrated by persistent obedience to God's command, is evidence of the victory that we have over the world, over sin and over death. God, uh, Christ has won once and for all. We do not need to fear. We've been set free. And as a result, we are free to live for the one who saved us because we love him so that we can glorify him and help others see his love as well. This evening, we have seen how the love of Christ truly can compel us to live our lives for him and his glory. The love that he has for us along with our love for him compels believers to desire to love one another. Love for one another. The spiritual family of God defines genuine believers. Those who do not love fellow believers have good reason to wonder whether they believe the right gospel because the family of God naturally will love one another. Sure. We're going to have our disputes. We're going to have our fights because, you know, we're sinful siblings living with one another. We're going to do that. Okay. But don't live in that. Don't stay there. If you sin against another bro brother or sister, repent, ask them for forgiveness. If you are the offended party, grant forgiveness. Don't hold it against them. I grant forgiveness. We're not going to be perfect in how we love one another or how we even show that love for one another. But passages like these encourage us to consider how we might improve in showing love towards our fellow believers and how we might also improve in receiving love from our fellow believers. Not everyone is going to love you in the way that you want them to love you, but if they're striving to love you, be thankful for that. Be thankful for that. The proof that our love for one another is a love that is rightly motivated by love for Christ is found in our love for God the Father. Are we willing not only to obey his commands, 
but to persistently obey his commands. This love is difficult to practice at times, but it won't be burdensome if we love God because we're willing to do whatever it takes to get closer to him. The love that we have for one another is a result of the love that we were shown from Christ. And as we've seen in previous weeks, we ought to love because God first loved us. And that love necessarily goes out to fellow Christians. But it also goes back to God. So, brothers and sisters, are you ready to do hard heart work? To slowly chip away at the sin that slowly entangles you? that is uh, on your heart like plaque? Are you willing to do the hard work to slowly conform every aspect of your life to Christ so that you too, so that we too can have a love for Christ that compels us in everything that we do? Are you willing to get to work? Are you willing? Let's do it together. By God's grace, we will draw nearer to him day by day. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We're grateful for how you show us that love for you and love for one another, it is powerful. It is life-changing. It is life-shaking. It does not allow for us to stay in our sins, but it challenges us right where we are to get rid of sin so that we can get more of Christ and we get more of you. Help us, Lord, to consider how we might love you better, how we might obey your word better and know your word better so that we can get all of the, of the sin that holds us back out of our lives so that we may please you. We know we're in for a lifelong journey of hard work. The Lord is worth it. It's worth it. It's a good work that you empower us and enable us to do. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.